0: Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a Writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.
1: In this episode of Writing Matters, I speak with Andrea Horningsfeld and Maria Dove. They are collaborators who support the work of teachers who are supporting English language learners. We talk about their assets-based approach to teaching English language learners, and thinking about the multiple literacies that they bring to the writing classroom. Welcome to Writing Matters. Today, we are speaking with Andrea Honigsfeld and Maria Dove about their work with emerging English learners. Welcome.
2: Good afternoon. I'm Andrea Honigsfeld. And I'm Maria Dove, and we're very excited to be here.
0: Thank you, Troy, for inviting us. This is a real honor for us to be able to talk about our work.
1: Yes, thank you so much. And we're going to get into your work here in just a few moments. But before we jump into that, I'd like to hear from each of you just a little bit about your pathway uh, through education. How have you come to be where you're at at this point in your career? Uh, What background do you have with teaching and with language learning? And tell us a little bit about. um, how you've come to these roles in which you find yourselves today.
2: Well, I started my teaching career uh, in a K-12 environment, actually spending most of that time in an elementary school, a K-6 school. And I was the designated ESL teacher. That's what we were called at the time. Now there's lots of other designations for what I did. Uh, The uh, main focus of my beginning work in the elementary school was a pull-out program. I would pull the students out and then have them in small groups in a small room that was apart from their general education curriculum. That progressed into a co-taught program probably about 20 years ago at this point, which was quite unique at the time because our special education uh, colleagues were co-teaching, but There was a rarity to see anyone co-teaching for the sake of English learners. So then after that, I ended my career as a K-12 educator back in 2009. And I have been on board at Malloy College in the School of Education and Human Services now for the past 10 years.
0: And my path is both similar and different i was born and raised in hungary so my very first teaching assignment was being an english as a foreign language teacher in a middle school and when i came to the united states i became an esl teacher in the new york city public school system at the early childhood and elementary level so going from secondary education to elementary was quite a switch and i too was introduced the, to co-teaching very early in my career And what our work is really most known for is how we have explored the topic of collaboration and co-teaching for the sake of English learners, which basically means how do we make sure that our English learners are fully integrated and included in the general education classroom so that they are exposed to the same curriculum with appropriate differentiation of instruction. We have been researching, co-authoring, co-presenting for about 12 years. We've actually published eight, nine, 10. Oh my goodness, 10, ten um, books, ten books. <laughs> losing track. I think about six of them are national bestsellers and we've been um, traveling around the country with this topic. I'm also at Molloy College and I'm the associate dean and director of a doctoral program focusing on social justice and equity.
1: Fantastic. Well, first of all, congratulations on so many successful collaborations. As someone who writes with others, I can understand how that can be both a wonderful and sometimes challenging experience. And so I applaud you for all the work that you've done and the awards that you've won. Tell us a bit more about your philosophy that you've developed, your pedagogical approach. You've used these phrases of co-teaching. Um, You're thinking about what it means to support English learners from the very early stages and up and through different levels of fluency. Just give us a, a little bit more of a background on the approach that the two of you take. If we were to look at your work, what are the themes that guide how you teach English language learners?
2: Well, going back to the late 20th century, the idea of that small group instruction and what happened during those lessons, those type of reading and writing lessons, were really very much grammar-based and had to do a lot with the structure of language. And that was, it was very much in the realm of how I was trained to teach English learners. Now, moving forward where we started to co-teach for English learners, now I'm in classrooms with very experienced uh, teachers teaching writing very differently. So here now, we're looking at process-oriented writing, where students are involved more in a writer's workshop model. They are brainstorming. They are writing initial drafts. They're using inventive spelling. There is feedback being given through peers and through teachers. And the process was truly more uh, beneficial for my English learners, being in that type of a writing learning environment. And I think our shared philosophy uh, could be defined
0: as an asset-based philosophy. We look at English learners as what they have, what they can do, what they bring to the table, rather than at any deficiencies, such as what they cannot do or not good at yet. And that defines our work, both with teachers and in our publications. We firmly believe in English learners to be integrated. So the curriculum has to be integrated, the children have to be integrated, the work has to be integrated. So what is happening with language development has to be connected to the grade appropriate, age appropriate core curriculum, whether it's a literacy curriculum or the core content areas. And that these are the touch points that bring our work together. And that could be the reason why we write well together, we work well together, because we have these shared
2: philosophies.
1: That's amazing. And so there are a few points that I'd like to pick up on in there. One is this move away from a more grammatical kind of systematic look, because I think despite all the research in English education and literacy studies, we still find glorified worksheets or digital dittos that are out there for English language learners and for regular um, first language speakers like to hear some more of your thoughts on that, about shifting toward the process-oriented. Then also, it, it seems to me, at risk of oversimplifying, your ideas are useful for first language students, too. I mean, you're talking about a writing workshop approach in which students are meant to create and collaborate in authentic ways. And so maybe you could even talk a little bit more about that and tell us some specific details. No, there's a lot of questions probably embedded in there, but any anything more about the shift in your pedagogical approach and the ways that it supports your English language learners as as well as those who may be native speakers.
2: So, do you want to go first? Well, I'm trying to remember your first part of the question. I'm sorry. Well, moving oh. from the worksheets. Oh, the moving, worksheets. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. That I triggered something it. in me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Here actually is now that we are. Uh, in teacher education, and I'm having my graduate education students write lesson plans, and then ultimately someone's going to put the word, you know, ditto, or I think they don't use that anymore. Handout, <laughs> handout. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and I—that's one thing I tell my students: you cannot put that in; it, it just doesn't belong. So the idea of these skills and drills and all of that, they sometimes have their place. I don't want to say that they don't have their place at all, but as far as a program and an approach to to teaching writing, they really are not effective. Students really need a more of a holistic approach where they're truly learning the craft, because it is a craft, and looking at mentor texts, really examining what it means to write a narrative, or what it means to write uh, something that is a a report for information. So there's all these different genres that have to be explored, which cannot be explored when you're using these worksheets and, and dittos.
0: Another very unique feature about teaching writing literacy or basically teaching anything to English learners is understanding that um, these students need to be able to relate to what we are doing. So a culturally responsive or culturally sustaining pedagogy is yet another shared philosophy that we bring into our. Um, college classrooms, the in-service, pre-service teacher education classes, professional development sessions and into our writings as well to remind teachers, educators that English learners will write better and more about things that they actually have prior knowledge about and then they could make personal connections to. So honoring the process of being able to um, use their voices and being able to focus on the message and not necessarily um, the mechanics that will override the importance of what the child is trying to say, how they're trying to express themselves is very important. So one important idea that we would like to circle back to is um, the importance of mentor texts or opportunities to use the idea of the zone of proximal development So English learners need to work with English-speaking peers, um, adults with others who have their craft at a higher level and being able to be exposed to writing and literacy in general at a higher level than what they could typically on their own produce. So this idea of how to accelerate their learning is very important. So that happens through engaging in a rigorous process but at the same time offering the necessary scaffolds for English learners to be successful. And we want to finally recognize that English learners is one term. Another emerging term is multilingual learners, which is another asset-based approach to working with this population, recognizing that many of them, not all, but many of them are bilingual, multilingual. They might be biliterate or might not be also literate in the native language but it's still a tremendous asset that they
2: bring to the table. I was just thinking emerging bilinguals is another um, label we often see in the literature now.
1: Yeah. Could you talk just a bit more about that? I think, you know, when I look back at my own pre-service education, I began my career, I like to say, as a consultant in a writing center. At that time, ESL was the term. And now we hear ELL and we hear emerging bilingual and others. And there are issues of power and privilege in the ways in which those labels are enacted. And even in looking through some of your work, looking at how different states and different organizations and different sets of standards put these labels on. Could you talk a little bit more about that? What's been the shift in the field away from ESL to some of these other terms? And and how does that speak to the pedagogical changes that you're thinking about as well.
0: Well, I'd like to go back maybe to the oldest term. Yes. You too. You wanted to do the same. L- go L-E- ahead. LEP. Go ahead. You, can, you can We go. finish each other's sentences. So that's, <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> you just kind of noticed that. Well, yeah. that was, a, well, LEP meaning limited English proficient. And you found that fabulous uh, was in Orange County, Florida where they had to use that term LEP because it was uh, the, uh, USDOE DOE designation for this group of students. But even though they used that um, acronym, they decided it wouldn't stand for a limited English proficient. It would stand for language-enriched pupil. And this was in the early
0: 1990s. So we trace back the origins of shifting away from putting the limitation first just as the same way in the world of special education, we no longer would ever say a disabled child. We're not putting the disability first. We're going to put a child with a a, a specific kind of disability. So the same shift is happening in the field of English language development and moving away from identifying the deficiencies to recognizing the assets. So the English language learner still identifies the target, what the students have to do because they are lacking. The multilingual learner or the emergent bilingual labels recognize the multiple um, linguistic identities and literacies that the children bring to the table. So that's the progression that we have witnessed over a couple of decades. So this is a slow-moving uh, train here,
2: but we do see that also even in our teacher uh, preparation programs, as well as the assessments that they have to complete. The idea that our teacher candidates have to explore the personal, cultural, and community assets of their students, in order mm-hmm. to provide information and really looking at the, uh, at those groups of youngsters, the different groups of youngsters ha- as having those uh, assets.
1: Yeah. Yes. I can certainly appreciate that and this idea that we move away from the label first and put the child first. And you've brought up a couple of ideas here a few moments ago about culturally sustaining pedagogies from Django Paris and and thinking about the ways that the field is shifting, which I very much appreciate. And yeah, I wanted to also explore what this means for us in a realm of high stakes assessment, because We all know at the end of the day, or at least by the end of the year, many of our students are still faced with uh, a test from a state, or if not the state, there are certain testing companies that are going to have them take a test to show that they know things, so they might move on to college and career. Where is the state of the conversation about standardized assessment and how you support emerging language learners? Uh, and maybe some practices that you use, again, in your writing workshop pedagogy to help prepare them and, and support them and move them towards proficiency so they can have those authentic experiences and yet still also succeed in those, those places where maybe more inauthentic but also are necessary.
0: So research shows that English learners need to make about 15 months progress in a 10 months period. So they need an accelerated curriculum. Their curriculum, the English language development curriculum, needs to be connected to their general education curriculum. So connecting assessment to monitoring that growth is really important. The final summative assessments, such as standardized tests, are a necessary part of education. We spend so much more time and effort on helping teacher teachers understand the process of formative assessment progress monitoring giving feed forward that we learned from Fisher and Fry rather than feedback so how to scaffold how to catch them before they fall so all of these uh, philosophies are seemingly in direct contradiction with what standardized tests are trying to achieve which is a snapshot at a given point
2: We're also seeing that more and more there are courageous school leaders who are saying that these standardized tests are just one particular snapshot and we're not going to devote the time, energy, and um, tears sometimes that are required to have students be twisted into these regiments of, teaching for the test and practicing tests and it's a waste of, of learning time. So we see that there are district leaders as well basically declaring to the community that this is, this is not what we're about. This is just a particular moment in time child's progress and we're not going to pay that much attention to it, basically, <laughs> compared with the rest of the, the uh, progress monitoring that is occurring throughout the school year. And since we're talking
0: about standardized assessments, what we have found out is that there is tremendous variation from state to state. What kind of testing accommodations are made available to English learners? And we have found that in some states, there is no zero accommodation offered. And in New York State, where we are from, uh, there is a a layered, complex, comprehensive approach to testing accommodations. So our, our field and our leaders across the 50 states are not in agreement to how are we going to create fair and equitable opportunities for English learners or multilingual learners to participate in state assessments. We've also seen um, eye-opening data on how how English learners do not have typically a strong four-year high school graduation rate, but once you get into the five or six-year graduation rates Or if you look at ever else, English learners who were ever identified as English learners, their graduation rates and their standardized assessment data, for example, in New York State, this just came out, they actually outperform English speakers, which is quite remarkable. So we would be able to, we'll be happy to hyperlink that um, article for your listeners.
2: Unfortunately, when talking to leaders about possibly planning five-year programs or six-year high school programs for English learners, they are actually penalized for having students who don't graduate within the four-year period. So they're, they're not able to plan these programs, which we know would really help our English learners succeed and, and graduate. And there's definitely a, a higher
0: rate of dropoutism in 11th grade and 12th grade. So the data, and the research all point in one direction that we really need to implement some significant changes around how we think about instruction and assessment for English learners. So we feel that our role is advocacy. We might not be day-to-day writing teachers in the classroom. We work with educators who do that um, on the job activity. Our role is advocacy for supporting English learners in the most inclusive, more, most integrated possible way.
1: And again, I applaud you for that work. And it's great to know that you're collaborating with those courageous school leaders who are pushing back against these structural inequalities that we are still stuck with for some reason. And even though we're not realizing all the possibilities for a little extra time or a little bit extra um Uh, effort or opportunity for some of these students and what that could do for them. So then as you work with teachers and as you think about helping teachers who, let's face it, many of us in America are monolingual, and um, let's face it, that many of them are still struggling to figure out all these uh, pedagogies um, of an asset-based approach. What are some recommendations or advice that you would offer to the classroom teacher who is trying to um, be as helpful and engaging as possible for English language learners? Or, I know there's probably a list of at least 23 different suggestions you might have, but if you had to narrow it down to two or three, what, where would we start? Where would a classroom teacher with English language learners begin?
2: And the word is multi.
0: Multi. We love that. The prefix multi. <laughs> mm-hmm. So think of, we're going to invite your listeners and you also, to just think for a moment of every single way that you could finish the word multi.
2: So multilingual, how do you tap into students' home languages? By uh, you know, tapping into other students who might already be fluent in English and have the same home language as the students if the teacher doesn't speak a home language. By tapping into technology. So that idea that we only speak English here is removed. I mean, we have been <laughs> uh, sometimes appalled, I am gonna use that word, at how teachers are still in that mindset that in order to uh, become fluid in English, you have to only speak English. The, the research doesn't back that up. The research backs up the use of home language in in the class to support the development of English language skills. So we really want to emphasize, there are so many different ways to do that multilingual um, strategy.
0: And other multis are multiple entry points. So we need to recognize the individual variations as well as of course the language proficiency levels. So English learners might have one label that that's an ELL or L, yet we have to approach teaching rating or teaching any literacy skill or any content area on multiple levels, multiple entry points, multiple intelligences. Multimodal Mm. is another really powerful strategy which suggests that English learners need to hear, see, interact, touch, and um, physically be involved throughout the learning process.
2: Actually, we we have uh, come up, uh, we have discovered this acronym SWIRL to have a swirling classroom. Swirl standing for speaking, writing, interacting, reading, and listening. And we have had one school district who was asking that where the teachers just focused on having this as their year-long goal. And their their question to each other was, are we swirling yet? And just focusing on that as a multimodal task really allows our English learners and all students to acquire the language because they're actually uh, have those speaking and, and uh, writing, the productive skills, along with interacting, reading, and listening as last. So, connecting to the swirl, the
0: S stands for speaking, which means we're a very strong advocates of oracy. There is research that connects oral language development to writing. And especially for English learners, the opportunity to engage in um, deeper thoughts, deeper conversations, rather than simply assigning writing, they need rehearsal time. They need opportunities to gather their thoughts, to practice their academic language and to elevate the academic oral discourse in the classroom. That's a really, really important message here with this swirl. And one favorite quote that we have found, unfortunately, it's attributed to anonymous, so we don't know who actually made this up, but we we just like to repeat it, which is, writing is thinking with a pen. So allowing writing to become a meaning-making process, not something that's scary, not something that is a formal assignment that the students now are forced to do. Instead, writing has to be an enjoyable day-to-day process a very functional, helpful process for meaning-making.
2: Meaning-making, just like we learned years back that reading, you know, reading to learn was a, a tremendous um, revelation to many. And now it, writing as a tool for learning is really one that, that we really focus on much. Yeah.
1: So I really appreciate this idea of are we swirling yet? And, and what it makes me think is that often we see um, where teacher talk time dominates and just helping teachers make that little pivot to are you giving your students opportunities to engage in that, as you said, academic oral discourse and then translating that into their writing. And I, I didn't have Um, opportunity to look at all of your work together. But, you know, Andrea, in your book, you know, speaking of the multimodality, I was struck by the one example of the students with the prepositions and holding like the word between and the two students pointing or the word under. So even though I'm a multimodal person from a digital perspective, I certainly appreciate that sometimes just using language and having fun with it in different ways can be really powerful. So um, again, and as you think about um, all of those aspects, are there any particular technologies um, that come to mind, things that you think are really helpful for your English language learners as they learn how to express themselves both through writing and through oral language?
0: So going back to the oral language and um, breaking down those barriers and fear of using language authentically, we absolutely love Flipgrid. Because Flipgrid invites students, and if teachers don't have a paid account, you could get a free account as long as the recordings are shorter than 90 seconds. And documenting students' oral language development, being able to explain their thinking, capturing um, oral language samples throughout the year is a very powerful way of encouraging expression, authentic expression. Absolutely. And then we've heard that teachers really love Seesaw as a tool to be able to document uh, the students' writing, their products, what they're able to produce, what they are illustrating, and then they are also able to attach explanations. So a multimodal technology tool like Seesaw is, um, is, is very powerful.
1: I completely agree. I'm working with one of our master's degree students right now on her capstone project in which she's using Seesaw and inviting her first graders to document their learning in different ways. So I can agree that that's pretty powerful. And I've heard many other educators speak to the power of Flipgrid and engaging in those authentic conversations. There is so much more that we could talk about, but I I know that uh, Time is limited today. So I wanted to uh, bring us to a close here by thinking about the role that writing plays uh, for both of you in your personal and professional lives. Um, One of the things that we'd like to talk about here on Writing Matters is who we see ourselves as when we think of ourselves as writers. So I wonder if each of you might offer some closing thoughts on what it means for you to be a writer
2: interestingly enough i often ask my students my teacher candidates do you have to be a reader in order to teach reading and they say of course and then i ask them do you need to be a writer in order to teach writing and they always pause and they don't think that you really should be a writer in order to teach writing so i look at writing as sometimes the same way I look at crossword puzzles. And <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. I think about it as something that I have to figure out when I really want to express what I have to say. And so I write down my thoughts as quickly as I can initially. And then I go back and then that's why I think we use the word craft. Then I use the craft of writing to figure out the puzzle of what I just Uh, created and make it become more fluent. And for me,
0: writing has always been a challenging aspect of being a multilingual person as I am, since English is not my first language, it's not even my second language. So to learn to write in English was terrifying at the beginning. And what I discovered on my own, without even knowing that there is such a thing, I was looking at Mentor texts. My doctoral advisor, Dr. Dunn, said, You have to read the genre to write the genre. And I will never forget how she was helping me become a better reader of professional literature to start writing in a professional voice. And finding Maria as my most stable long term co author, we've been just co authoring so much articles. Uh, blog posts, guest posts, and of course, books, we found that we co-write in a unique Mm -hmm. way, we read for each other, we divide and conquer, and then our voice just gets intertwined into one entity. And sometimes we go back and we can no longer even see where one person's thought ended and another one began, because through sustained practice and, and a sustained opportunity to work with her, allowed me to polish my English speaking voice and my English writing. So, uh, mentor text and mentors and co authors and collaborators helped me um, write better. And now, as a doctoral mentor, I help doctoral students write better. And it's, it's just paying it forward, giving it, passing it on.
1: Absolutely. Well, and this idea that you can no longer see where one voice ends and the other begins, I think is also a maybe a metaphorical way to think about the way in which you support English language learners, too. So yes. I can certainly appreciate that. Well, uh, Andrea, and Maria, thank you so much for the work that you do with and for students, and I appreciate your time today.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity, and we really enjoy this. Yes, thank you. Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a Writable podcast. Discover more episodes and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms. Or check out filmed episodes on YouTube. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.